Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, hey, my name is Blake. I'm an American currently living in Shanghai, China. Uh, I moved here in late 2019 for what was supposed to be a six-month project, but due to the various complications of, uh, from COVID, we'll have lived here for going almost a year and a half. Uh, needless to say, this time of my life has been incredibly transformative. I uh, had a lot of opportunities to reevaluate some things and you have been, you and your podcast have been part of the journey. Uh, so really I just want to say thank you. All the conversations that I've listened to have been absolutely fantastic. I'm currently listening to uh, episode 340 with Ricardo Serpa. I'm a huge motorcycle fan myself so took an interest in that one. So just want to say keep doing what you're doing man. And uh, really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you, Blake. Hope everything's going well over there in China. <clears throat> uh, really appreciate hearing from everybody. You can send uh, an audio clip if you'd like to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, I've got a bunch of them backlogged. I'm sorry for people who sent them that I haven't played yet. I don't want to overwhelm you with them. Um, but I'm going to keep doling them out even if they're... Um, <clears throat> they've been in my inbox for a while. This episode is with a really interesting cat named Jamie Wheel, W-H-E-A-L. He is the co-author of a book that came out a while back, a few years ago, called Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists Are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work. And he's the founder of the Flow Genome Project, an international organization dedicated to research and training uh, around ultimate human performance. I have to tell you, I, uh, I didn't think I was going to like Jamie as much as I did because, you know, the things that I had um, found online, like what I just read to you, made me think that he was one of these like, you know, hyper optimization bros um, and, uh, and actually I, I said that to him, uh, you know, that in the conversation you'll hear, I was like, wait a minute, I thought you were like this kind of guy. And he's like, no, no, I'm this other kind of guy. Um, I like that when that happens, it makes me feel like a bit of a douchebag, um, for having made assumptions that turn out not to be true, but it's always good to find that, uh, you know, that people are uh, capable of surprising you. And the reason I, I had him on is to talk about his book that's out today. Uh, it's called Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind, uh, published by HarperCollins, my old publisher from Sex at Dawn days. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Jamie and I were going to talk a lot about sex. I don't think we actually did talk about sex that much, but that's the sign of a good conversation where you set out thinking you're going to be talking about one thing and you end up talking about lots of other things. Um, 
Jamie is one of the most articulate people I've ever met. And I have to admit to you, there were several times in the conversation where he threw out some metaphors or some images or just, you know, tweaked language in a way that distracted me from the substance of what he was saying. Um, because I was just thinking like, man, that metaphor, what, how, how did he come up with that? And how does that connect with, you know, what he just said a few minutes ago? And look at how that image blends so beautifully with this other image that he just used. And, and he's got alliteration in there as well. And it, like, it's almost like the, the power of his language for me became an impediment to some extent to seeing what was being communicated by the language. Um, and that's, you know, I totally cop to that being a sign of my intellectual incapacity, not, uh, <laughs> not any problem on his side. Um, but, you know, you've got the advantage of being able to stop this podcast and say, no, what did he just say? And go back and listen to it again or think about what he said for a few minutes before um, before we continue, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting experience to, to talk to someone who's that hyper articulate that, um, you can get lost in the words, you know, it's the forest for the trees kind of situation, I guess. Uh, this episode is one of those few sponsored episodes that I throw at you occasionally. And this is brought to you by our, um, much appreciated sponsor Lilo. I thought it was appropriate that Lilo could sponsor this episode about recapturing the rapture because Lilo has done a lot to bring a lot of rapture to a lot of people. And they've asked me to focus on the Enigma, which is, a, I think, a new design that they've come up with. And uh, we're going to be giving one of these away as we do every month on my uh, Instagram page. So you follow me, follow Lilo, and you'll find the, uh, the post that shows this very interesting looking um, stimulator. It looks, I don't know, it looks like some kind of spaceship. Um, really interesting design, these things. Um, makes me wish I, I had a vagina because this is clearly a woman's, this is not a prostate kind of thing. This is a luxurious dual action sonic massager designed to titillate both the entire clitoris, its visible and invisible parts. You know, the clitoris isn't just that little nub that you see there. The clitoris actually goes inside the vagina and that's the g-spot the famous g-spot everyone's heard of is when the sort of internal clitoris is being massaged so this thing is designed to stimulate both the outer uh, clitoris the sort of tip of the iceberg and the iceberg itself uh, for an orgasm so intense, you'll think you've left this planet. So there you go. That's why it looks like a spaceship, I guess. Featuring the best of sonic waves on the exterior of the clitoris and gentle pulsations of the internal arm within your body, Enigma flutters in all the right places for an orgasm you won't forget. So there you go. Sigmund Freud, I think it was, said that 
Um, or maybe it wasn't. I think it was Sigmund Freud, though, who said there were clitoral orgasms and vaginal orgasms. And that the clitoral orgasm was a less mature orgasm and that the vaginal orgasm was the correct, more mature, you know, very judgmental fucking Sigmund Freud. And of course, he would say that the orgasm that could be provoked by the penis would be the preferable orgasm. Um, you know, you got to have men involved with these things. Um, but as as it turns out, I don't really think any sexologist believes that uh, there's any real strong distinction uh, between a vaginal, so-called vaginal and clitoral orgasm. Uh, they all sort of seem to come about, so to speak, uh, through the same neurological systems that can be stimulated in different ways. So anyway, the enigma from Lilo, go to my Instagram page and tell me why you think you want to win this particular spaceship and where you think you'll go on it. I'd also like to, I was thinking last time, like when we do these giveaways, we don't know how many of the people enter the giveaway because they heard about it on the podcast versus people who just happen to follow me on Instagram and and saw the thing go up. So uh, say something about space travel or stars or, um, you know, something involving Carl Sagan or something like that when you're explaining why you want to win this. And that way I'll know that you came from the podcast and you heard about this on the podcast because I want to make sure that somebody from the podcast wins it this time. All right. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jamie Wheel. He's a real interesting cat. Uh, he's an expert in peak performance and um, specializes in neuroanthropology, which is looking at the intersection of culture, biology, and psychology. So he and I have a lot in common in, in terms of our interests and our research. Like a lot of the episodes that I've been recording recently online, I've captured the video and uh, we're posting those on my YouTube channel. You can just uh, search Chris Ryan. That's my YouTube channel. And you'll see the various uh, episodes that we're posting from recent uh, days, as well as episodes from the archives that are going up steadily uh, audio only. So if you listen to podcasts or watch podcasts on YouTube, uh, please subscribe to Chris Ryan and you'll get the content there. Uh, most of them without these intros. So uh, that's the trade-off. It just starts at the uh, beginning of the interview. We cut out the music because we don't want to be dealing with, you know, all sorts of YouTube um, issues around that. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do that either by um, contributing financially through my website at tangentiallyspeaking.com. You can use the uh, the Amazon affiliate link that you'll find there on my website, which if you're spending money on Amazon, they'll kick a few percentages uh, of whatever you spend back to support the website. Costs you nothing. Just costs Jeff Bezos a little bit of cash. He can afford it. Um, and you can also support the podcast by writing a review on uh, iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, telling your friends about it and so on and so forth. Thank you for your attention and please say hello to Jamie Wheel after 
I play you out with a song called There Will Be a Light by the Blind Boys of Alabama. Jamie Wheel, how are you, man? Great, great. Nice to be here, Chris. Where are you? Austin, Texas. Austin. Oh, I'm uh, I'm actually driving to Austin in two days. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, we could have done this in person after all this technological back and forth. Um, yeah, no, a friend of mine, uh, his his ex girlfriend just died unexpectedly and 
he's driving down to uh, retrieve some of her ashes, and I volunteered to go along on the drive. So it's going to be kind of an interesting road trip, uh, which sort of a you know transcendental road trip in some ways. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Anyway, walk to a movie. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of a. It reminds me. I don't know if you've ever seen a film called. I think it's called Broken Flowers with Bill Murray. Mm. Does that ring a bell? I do, yeah, I do vaguely remember that. Yeah, he. It, I saw it a long time ago. Uh, it's a vague memory for me as well. But I think the, the story is that he's diagnosed with cancer. Uh, there's some sort of, at the beginning, he gets some news and he decides to take a trip and visit his ex-girlfriends from the past. So it's this very nostalgic kind of end of life road trip. Um I keep thinking about that movie uh preparing for this this drive to Austin. Yeah, it's it's an interesting film. There's also a a book, I don't know if you've ever read um Edward Abbey. He's Oh yeah. You read Desert Solitaire. Yep. He wrote his last book called A Pilgrim's Journey or Pilgrim's Progress or something um, after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's hmm. an interesting book about him driving from Utah back to Pennsylvania where he was born. It's kind of a a privilege in a way to have the opportunity to know you're dying and have an opportunity to to create an event around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm actually going to have a conversation with B.J. Miller, the physician who's overseen, I think, you know, well over a thousand deaths and written a book about it. And that's that's in a couple of days. So I've just been thinking about that too, and that notion of like, like you said, like the privilege of of practicing death and what that does versus it just being sudden or random. So many people say they just want to die in their sleep. Right, they just want to mm-hmm. be gone, and uh, I feel like that's such a missed opportunity. Well, I mean, I'd take that, <laughs> you know, and I <laughs> and, and I'd take a, a painless but certain terminal illness. Um, it's the in betweens that are the son of a bitches that prompt, I think, the bargaining. You know. Yeah, yeah. I've been reading a book called The Arenda uh, the last few days, which is about um, American Indians. And uh, for the Jesuits who first went to um, that area in what is now Ontario and the Hurons and some uh-huh. of the Iroquois uh, nation. And uh, it's interesting how they had this um, cultural tradition of torturing uh, warriors that were captured in battle. Uh-huh. And the torture was seen as um, an honor, right? It was giving you the opportunity to die in this incredibly painful yet honorable way. Um, it's It's a really interesting book and, you know, trying to wrap my head around that. Like why, why, how did this connection get made between extreme agony and an exalted state? And I was thinking about it this morning, also reading your book and and looking at some of your work and um, 
peak experiences and flow state. And I wonder if that's sort of a back door into a peak experience or a flow state, you know, extreme agony, like the agony of Jesus on the cross is, is celebrated as somehow being exalted, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I think that's a, that's a rich avenue for us to explore now that and the specifics of that torture in fact there's a really good uh i think it's a film from quebec called black robe oh yeah i've seen that that's right yeah same same subject matter yeah they take like muscle shells and they're like like razor blades and use them to like (laughs) play and cut and and that sense of and if your enemy dies honorably then eating you know ritualized cannibalism right would be imparting some of their honor some of their courage you know, which is totally different than how, you know, we would see those taboos, like the Dahmer party or something else, you know, like, it's not <laughs> yeah. nutrition, you know, yeah. it, it, it's imbibing the spirit of, um, so for sure. And even, even, um, that show Vikings, which I think did kind of like a game of Thrones version of, of Nordic stuff, you know, that their, their ultimate death, which was supposedly only bestowable upon royalty was that blood Eagle thing where they would rip their rib cage open and flay them from behind and then take their lungs out and flop them over their <laughs> shoulders. And you're like, oh, man. But, you know, it was also considered, like, that's how kings go down. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're definitely in sort of BDSM community. You find people moving into ecstasy by way of pain, right? There's I, I knew a woman years ago, really interesting woman, um, who had a chronic um, back condition. It was, um, uh, I forget what it's, it's, curvature of the spine. Do you know what I'm talking about? That scoliosis. strikes scoliosis, right? So normally it's a transitory problem. Adolescent girls, sometimes they, when I was a kid anyway, they would wear like a body brace for a year while the the body sort of aligned itself and and it was okay. But in her condition, uh, it was a chronic condition. She was going to have it the rest of her life. And she had had, uh, when I met her, I think she was in her mid-20s and she had already had six or seven major spinal surgeries. And um, she had two rods running along her spine and the vertebrae were all connected to these rods to, to keep her spine aligned. And um, she's really interesting because she was very elegant looking. She looked like a, like a, a crane or a swan or something because her arms and her legs were unusually long for the size of her torso. And it wasn't something you would notice consciously. You'd just say like, wow, what an elegant looking woman, right? But then when I got to know her, she explained to me that her torso, her spine had stopped growing because of uh, this condition and the rods and all that, but her arms and legs continued. So she had the limbs of a woman who was 5'9", but she was only 5'7", let's say, you know. Um, Really interesting. But she had this chronic pain, and she recognized early on that if she started taking pain meds, she was going to get addicted and it was going to be a bad scene. Mm -hmm. So what she did was she consciously eroticized her pain and she got into the whole BDSM 
community in a big way. I mean, body, you know, piercing and uh, really heavy stuff, stuff ultimately that made me uncomfortable, even though I understood perfectly where she was coming from. Um, you know, no judgment. I just couldn't, I couldn't eroticize it. Um, but, um, you know, I always think about her because I, I, I said to her, like, do you have any attraction to this personality wise? Like, is this something you would have gotten into without the medical condition? And she said, no, this is purely a response to this physiological condition that she found herself in. Really interesting how these extremes connect in, in unexpected ways. So your your research, your work in general is in exalted states and flow state. This is sort of where you come from. Well, I mean, funnily enough, I actually share good overlap with your background. I mean, my academic, I was sort of all but done on, on I did all my PhD coursework by the age of 22 in sort of historical anthropology. So my advisor was Vine Deloria Jr., who was one of the Lakota elders and, and lawyers, one of the lead, you know, leading lights of the 20th century, um, studying you know, race, class, gender, and place, you know, fundamentally geography. Um, at, at Boulder. So like that's that that was our first, you know, I watched Jeremiah Johnson, that Robert Redford flick. And I was yeah. like, where are those mountains? I have to go, you know. <laughs> no and, kidding. Yeah, yeah. Like like t chucked my application to New Haven and was like, no, fuck it. I'm going I'm going to either UW or CU. And um then kind of just dived into this combination of like the sort of neuroanthropology, like like what are the habits and customs of people around the world and across time and what makes us tick and then increasingly fascinated by well like what's the neuroscience and psychology underneath those habits patterns custom behaviors rituals why do they do what they do and that's really kind of what this book um, is, is about you know most of it is just say you know it's halfway halfway backwards looking like what is the kind of operator manual to being a human, both as an individual and in a culture. And then how do you then take those Lego blocks and then use that forward facing for culture architecture? If we know, how, you know how things are supposed to work well together, how can we build new, creative, more resilient or innovative social forms that might serve us on the road ahead? So, okay, why did you write Recapture the Rapture? What was the motivation there? Gosh, I mean, th there were several. <laughs> um, one of them was, was, was uh, I mean, one of them is obviously that Yeats poem, right? The Second Coming, where he says, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. And I remember seeing that fellow, gosh, what was his name? I feel like, I want to say it's Steve Scalisi, but it, there, there's a, there was a, he, or Steve King, whatever it was, it was that, you know, 60 something white dude from Idaho, House of Representatives or something. And I just remember him on the news, you know, back in 2014 or 15 or something, screaming about women's reproductive rights, you know, and pa passing legislation to like lock that down. You're like, wow, that's half of the world. And this, this is a guy who didn't even have a U.S. passport. You know, it never even traveled beyond the boundaries of this country. And I'm like, wait, why is this guy holding forth on the, you know, the, the reproductive rights of half of humanity? Like, what dog does he have in this fight? And so that was just kind of one of those curiosities of like, oh, wow, you know, the mic, our collective mic 
on our conversation about you know where what's happening and what do we do next has been fairly consistently hijacked by the worst among us with passionate intensity you know so how do the rest of us how do you know in yates's terms how do the best reclaim our conviction so that's the kind of lowercase rapture bit like how do we reclaim our healing our inspiration and our connection you know, AKA lowercase rapture. So we can show up fully as citizens, as members of our communities and families, you know, as individuals. And then, you know, and at the same time, um, the kind of uppercase rapture, right? More and more of us um, are getting swept up in compelling utopian or dystopian end stories. And, you know, when you think of like rapture ideologies, we often think of like, you know, you're wired up to a suicide vest or you've got a sandwich board, you know, saying the end is nigh, you know, sinners repent. But it's, you know, it's also techno-utopian raptures, right? It's, mm. it's Ray Kurzweil and the singularity. It's, it's you mm -hmm. know, I mean, there was a moment where um, actually Peter Demondis and I were both speaking at his conference at the Exponential Medicine Conference. And he came out and... And I just had this bizarre out-of-body experience where he was sort of, it was almost like something out of like the capital at the Hunger Games. He's like, all this change is coming and you're not going to be able to stop it. And then it's all going to fucking happen. And it just seemed like some whacked Mad Max carnival barker, you know. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, Jesus, this is no longer feeling so frothy and optimistic and like, <laughs> you know, move fast, break things. It's like, I think we broke something, <laughs> you know. Hey, slow down. Stop breaking yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 I was I was giving a talk. <laughs> yeah, I was giving a talk in Johannesburg at at, an, at a Singularity University uh, gathering. It was called Future Proofing Africa, and I was just torn because half of the conversations were badass and super inspiring. You know, like here's here's a shipping container that can extract drinking water from clouds, and you know, and you know, and nanotech to help this, that, and the other, or medicines, or whatever it would be. And then there were these other talks, like Aubrey de Grey from Cambridge, right, that the longevity life extension fellow, you know, talking about extending human life indefinitely, and and it literally like within a month of the WHO releasing their report that you know more more people worldwide are committing suicide then they're dying of all wars and all natural disasters combined. So like between those two, you're like, wait, what's going on here? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, a, and a woman from Silicon Valley talking about how to build, how to bring like robot building projects to illiterate villages in Central Africa. And you're like, why is that a good thing? You know, what yeah. are we doing? And so that sense of exponential everything, right? Everything's hitting the hockey stick curve for good and bad, right? We've got, we've got all the new techno-utopian, positive change, and we're going to be, you know, you know, Jetsons and jetpacks and, and drone copters and the whole bit. Um, and at the same time, everything is getting exponentially worse. You know, ice caps and polar bears and geopolitics and, and the whole bit. And it's very hard to model a bunch of intersecting, competing and conflicting exponential curves. Our brains just aren't hooked up to do that well. And, but, but the thing we're missing is exponential meaning. Right, we don't have a way to make sense of this increasingly and acceleratingly complex and consequential world we appear to be living in. So, what do we do with that? And and so, really, for me, um, you know, four years ago, I wrote a book called Stealing Fire. It was it was pointing out kind of the rise in non-ordinary states, the rise in transformational culture, blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, and since then, um, it seems like that whole situation is kind of going squarely into the ditch. So this book was to say, hey, here's a toolkit. Here's sort of like, like ideal, 
the design firm, like they've got that human-centered design toolkit. So they, you know, they've designed office chairs and computer mouses and this and that. But they're like, actually, the real juice here is how we think about creating stuff. And so they built that human-centered design toolkit. And villages in Ghana, Delhi, urban slums, wherever around the world, you give it to people and you say, if you use this process with your community, you can create better things for yourselves that have a higher likelihood of working. And they've done microfinance and they've done water projects, they've done childhood education, they've done all kinds of really cool innovation. So that was an inspiration to be like, okay, um, if we, you know, WWID <laughs> instead of WWJD, right? Instead of what would Jesus do? Like, what would IDEO do? And how would you bring design thinking to this meaning crisis that we're in to give people tools to make better decisions and communities for themselves? Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. <clears throat> the first thing I want to I want to note is that the plural of computer mouse is mouses and not computer Absolutely. mice. And the same with octopus. It's not octopi, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a buddy who wrote a book tell about. Me tell me. Tell what? me why. Tell me. Well, why. I don't know. You, you just said it. You just. I'm taking your word for it. You just said well, they're, they're creating better computer mouses, and I was like, okay, this guy knows. Now oh, I know. Shit. Maybe I okay. Then that was a slip. I think I'm supposed to be mice, but I think the octopus. Oh, really? This thing is legit. <laughs> yeah, the octopuses thing is legit. I have a buddy who wrote a book about octopuses, and uh, he he told me so. I believe him. Uh, I just figured you're. But aren't you one of these Silicon Valley dudes? Aren't you one of the? No. You know, life hacker. No, God, te no. techno gurus. No, I'm, Nope, I'm 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 a dirtbag, backcountry skier, surf bum, go catch good music, and then also have a life of the mind. Um, so no, I'm I'm actually like radically countercultural. My fascination from the, my twenties was like, can I just buy a mining claim and put up a yurt, throw up some solar panels? <laughs> you know, <laughs> seriously, and just write. Oh God, yeah, like just write yeah. and ski and climb and come down from time to time to catch a really good live show, and then fuck off because I can't figure out humans. <laughs> oh, interesting i thought you are you i'm hearing an echo now is did anything change on your side oh, no no now it just stopped okay good um okay i i thought that you, maybe it's just because of uh stealing fire is, is the subject matter involves a lot of uh sort of new technological advances and uh, that's yeah, what, I mean, uh, I mean, like some some of that's just kind of neuroporn, and the state of our of our world, and and how you frame and language things. Ultimately, I'm a transcendental humanist at heart. You know, like I actually care about the big long arc of like how do we do this human thing, and how do we develop and grow over time. So my background was in like mountain guiding, education, like like training and leading people in in wild and lively environments like Nepal mm. and, you know, like all over, like, how do we do this thing in a way that's really fun? We, we built a Montessori school for our kids, you know, like that's, that's our jam. And the notion of flow states and that kind of stuff, it wasn't that I, I mean, yes, I love them and I have obviously sought them out in my life, but the calling our organization, the flow genome project was the emphasis was on the genome. It was to say, Hey, this doesn't have to be mystical or an object of fetishization or obsession, you actually, here's the building blocks. You can go get it, you can create it. And 
you know, the, the driver of a flow state is it's autotelic, it's self-propelling. Like you do it because you love it. And my sense was, is that, you know, teaching at Esalen and teaching at varying other places, like the weekend workshop high is a commodity. That's not the hard thing, you know, to get people blown open and super fired up and weepy and cathartic and ecstatic and all these things. Like that's, they've, shit, they've been doing that since, you know, like 1963. <laughs> you know, it's Monday morning in February. That's the bitch. And, yeah. and so guilt and vanity you know, which are our typical drivers from motion or change. Like I'm either a lazy bastard, so I have to go running on Monday morning because I sat on the couch watching football and eating, eating chili dogs, you know, or vanity. I still want to fit in my high school jeans or whatever. Like those are all depletable fuels. They don't actually get the job done for long-term sustainable development. But autotelic flow states, right, that, that Howard Thurman, that uh, civil rights leader and philosopher, he said, you know, he said, don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive, and then go and do that, because the world needs more of us who've come alive. Mm. So it was kind of along those lines. It was more like the do your gut, because the do your goddamn push-ups project just doesn't have quite so much of a ring to it. But it was fundamentally that. It's like, find what you love, unlock your intrinsic desire to grow and do hard, meaningful things, and then use that as the fuel for a meaningful life, basically. Yeah, I was talking to a guy yesterday, um, a young dude who was at that crisis point in his life where he's trying to figure out what to do, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and he was caught in this conflict between a sense of responsibility. I'm supposed to have a job. You know, my dad's a doctor. He's disappointed that I'm not a doctor. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be making money, saving for the future, yada, yada, yada. Um, and his passion, which was, I want to go see the world. I want to have experiences, uh, but it makes me feel selfish that I, I want to do this. Um, and, uh, he he was talking about Jordan Peterson who, you know, at least in his mind sort of represents the do your Uh pushups, you know, repent for your, uh, chaotic internal life or something. Uh Um, and I think you're right that there is a crisis of meaning. Um, the The question is, the way you described it was really interesting because you said, if I heard you correctly, you know, the hockey stick, the the, the fact that everything is exponentially more complex, more interconnected, more um, uh, more technologies vying for our attention, you know, more money sloshing around the world, more everything. Um, and we don't have systems of meaning that can keep up with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's generally, if I understood you correctly, that seemed to be what you're saying. And I was thinking like, do we need more meaning? Is it that we, is it that our internal, um, life is not keeping up with the external life or is it that we've lost meaning? Is it that you know, are suicides going up around the world, depression, addictive behaviors? Are these going up because the world's becoming more complex or because um, increasing secularization, for example? You know, like the religions are being, at least Western religions, have, have largely been exposed as fraudulent, um, you know. Uh, sort of power. It's all about power and money and hypocrisy as opposed to approaching the divine. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's back, to, it's back to McKenna's phrase of, you know, like uh, archaic, or, or, or Iliadis actually, but like archaic techniques of ecstasy. Like, do we actually right. have the tools, the processes, the rituals that can reinstantiate a connection to the ineffable? You know, the, I was I was thinking right. like that Alex Haley's roots. You know, where in the before it goes obviously horribly off the rails, there's that moment in Ghana where his his father holds him up and says, "Behold, Kunta Kinte." You know, the only thing in the universe greater than you, and it's like the Milky Way and the, you know the beauty of the night sky. Like, we crave that. We need that. Yeah. You know, and and my sense is that it's actually it's exactly it's precisely both. Like you just you wondered is it one or the other? I think it's both. Like, mm. you know, we've we've had two pillars of meaning in the last three four hundred years, right? You can sort of almost say they're one and two right? Like one was traditional religion, and that promised salvation. You would be saved, right? At the price of of of, exclu- of exclusion, right? If you if you didn't be- if you believed you were saved, if you didn't, you were damned. And then meaning 2.0, French Enlightenment, modernism, civil rights, democracy, inclusive civil project, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone, regardless of race, color, or creed. Now, lots of Swiss cheese as far as like the fulfillment of that promise, but it was, it's an ideal, right? Mm -hmm. And that promised inclusion at the cost of salvation, separation of church and state, and Nietzsche's God is dead. So as we've seen those two guardrails not, not quite simultaneously. It felt like tr- religion was starting to buckle and collapse sooner, but modern liberalism definitely since 08, and certainly in the last year to five with you know, K-shaped recoveries and all these kind of things, both of them have collapsed. The roof is caved in. So we no longer have a shared consensus reality of what it means to be an American, you know, what it means to be alive on this earth, what it means to be a part of the human family or not, you know, or a flat out rejection of that even premise, right? Um, And so we're seeing, you know, rather than everybody waking up and doing what Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, you know, Richard Dawkins might have said, like, let's become rational, secular, humanist atheists. We're getting people sucked to fundamentalism on one side and nihilism on the other. And that's the diseases of despair, the addiction, depression, anxiety and suicides. And that, you know, the middle has been hollowed out. So the question, I think, is, is how do we rebuild that? And, you know, and by the way, and it's happening at precisely the same time that we are becoming, I mean, we're almost, if we want to talk singularities, you know, to me, um, it almost seems like we are approaching a singularity of humans being aware of basically God's eye consciousness. You know, in the sense of we're aware of the Alpha and Omega. We've got the Large Hadron Collider and we're studying the moment of creation at the Big Bang. We're also mapping stars and galaxies. We're also mapping ice sheets and biodiversity and ocean pollution. So like at the very same time that we're coming to this beginning and end, you know, God's eye perspective of our human experience, we're also becoming acutely aware of the fragility of our own existence. And there was, there's a book called X Risk, and there was, a, there was an excerpt in the MIT Reader. And it was just this crazy, like, two-page timeline of humans becoming aware of existential risk. And basically, all the, medi- you know, all the ancient, like Gilgamesh and the flood epics and all that kind of stuff, those were all mythological, and they all involve some divine intervention or intersection and a, you know, a continuation or a transmutation of life, not just humans get snuffed. 
And it wasn't until Halley's Comet in like the 1700s and the discovery of dinosaur bones and the early evolution of paleontology and that kind of stuff where you're like, oh, whoa, like, A, that's a comet and it's coming near our planet and it could smash into us and that would probably be a bad thing. Um, and who are the bones of these giants and creatures that clearly aren't around anymore? They were here and now they're not. <laughs> and maybe that could happen to us too. Holy mm. moly. Like, that's literally a few centuries old. And mm. so, right? So we, we're having like this collapse in meaning. Who would tell us what to make of this? We're having an increase in awareness, right? Even including like cell phone videos of suffering all around the world. You think of like George Floyd and the I Can't Breathe video, right? Yeah rocked the world that phrase i can't breathe resonated in a way that would have been typically reserved for my group my tribe my clan my village right and 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 at the same time we're realizing oh my god we have this the burden and the blessing of this expansive awareness of past present future everyone everywhere every when and then, oh, by the way, we're getting like Bill come to you, the Greta Thunberg effect of like, and you might have shat the bed, kids. <laughs> you know, the very same advanced technological civilization that gave you this awareness is also the one that might have just overcooked the whole shooting match just in time for you to wake up and try and digest all of this at once. It's a lot. Yeah. Has anyone ever told you that hanging out with you makes them feel stoned? Yes, sometimes. <laughs> when I'm listening, when you're talking, there's so many ideas flying around and so many synaptic connections happening. And I'm like, okay, hold on to that one and hold on to the, and then and they're all just slipping through my finger fingers and I'm uh, uh, a little mesmerized. Um, you know, when you were, okay, one thing that, that jumped out at me was you talked about, I don't remember the phrase, was it meaning 1.0 and meaning 2.0? Yeah. Uh, it, that made me think of what we started talking about earlier, the conference that you were at with, you know, everyone with their big ideas, whether it's mm -hmm. TED or Davos or, you know, whatever it is. I wonder if there's a meaning 3.0, which, which didn't last very long because nothing lasts very long these days with the increasing acceleration, but uh, technology as the answer, right? 10, 20 years ago, it seemed like we were going to have jetpacks, like everything was happening so fast and improving, improving, improving. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember the first laptop, the first, I, you know, had my first computer in like 92 or something. The internet was just starting to happen. Um, you know, I had a. I worked in a place with a computer. My job was to to um, change the discs every night to back up the disc. The discs were the size of uh, I don't know, like they were huge. They were like the size of a large pizza, uh, and the the computer was like a big refrigerator. And you'd like, and they were probably you know five megabytes each or something. I don't. Um, but everything happened so fast. I've probably had 20 Apple computers and they were different. Everyone was new and different, new design. And then the last, what, 10 years, they've just been the same. They just faster. They all look the same. They're all made out of that same material, that, you know, aluminum. And they're awesome, but, but it's not changing anymore. And it feels like the news has gone from technologies going to save us to no technologies, just another empty promise. Um, 
you know, is that part of the crisis? Is that part the the fact that you and I, who are probably among the the greatest beneficiaries of these changes of the last twenty or thirty years, even we look at it and shake our heads at how overhyped it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're going to bring robotics to villages in Central Africa. You know, we just like scoff at this. What? Is there is that what's happening? Is that that the third wave has come through and that's been empty as well? Hmm. Is there another wave? Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's a great question, and 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 my my hunches, and I, and I think this is true for any any techno utopianism, right? Any any position that holds that we're going to invent or innovate our way out of this the human condition in whatever complexity yeah. or time period we're, tr- we're talking, right? And, and I think it's, it's true for the psychedelic renaissance, right? There's so many people that are, mm-hmm. you know, they breathlessly share every study from Hopkins or Imperial or, you know, and, and MAPS's groundbreaking work that's going on. And you're like, hey, I, I'm a super, like anything that helps people mend, heal, and, and, and live fulfilling lives, a thousand percent behind. And, you know, none of this lets us off the hook for solving the existential dilemma, you know, of Ernest Becker 101, <laughs> you know, like, right. like here we are, an animal, and we, we go into the ground and blindly rot dumbly forever to disappear. How the hell do we make sense of that? Because you can go all the way to yeah. full matrix, full black mirror. We've got AR, VR, teledic dildonics. You know, you can just be like pleasuring yourself <laughs> like a little rat pushing buttons, you know, in your own immersive yeah. holographic universe of your choosing. You know, yeah. and then what? You know, like we still have to figure out that. And that's actually not so sexy or flashy. That's at the bottom of the stack. That's back to, you know, Plato and Socrates and the world's philosophical traditions of like, what do we do with these eight or nine decades in these bodies of ours? And how do we reconcile our animal and angel nature? Well, that that's kind of what I was getting at earlier with the hockey stick thing. Is it is it that there's more coming at us and we have less defenses against it or fewer defenses against it? Or is it that we just are constantly distracted from the essential questions? Um, and yeah, I, I, I think the older I get, now I don't know if this is a function of age or it's just... Um, it's just that I'm getting to know myself better or responding to the world uh, as the world changes. But I guess I'm becoming conservative in an, in an essential sense that I feel like everybody who's got some fucking answer is full of shit and there is no answer. The only answer is to like deal with yourself, deal with your fear, deal with your mortality, deal with your nightmares, deal with your need for love and your vulnerabilities and your, you know, the essential terror at the heart of human existence, right? And, um, you know, I was happy to hear you uh, mention Aubrey Dubray, or Dugray or whatever his name is, that, and the whole sort of singularity and we're going to conquer death. Peter Thiel and all these guys are spending all this money. They're going to conquer death. I look at them and I pity them. I pity these guys. Like, I understand you've got a great life. You've got tons of money. You're flying around from island to island and on, you know, living on yachts and you want it to last forever. But where's the historical 
context, right? Where is your understanding that people have been afraid of death forever and always will be, and that the only way out of that is to stop being human? Maybe that's the, the promise of the singularity. Sure, you'll live forever, but you won't ever be alive, truly. That's the deal, right? That's that's the, the fucking deal that was offered to Adam and Eve, apparently. Um, anyway, I keep I keep ranting, and I start off with a question in my head, but as I'm ranting, it uh, it just disappears into the ether. No, it's it's okay. I we, blame it on you, man. I'll tell you, it's neuro it's it's oh. it's neurolinguistic uh, psychosomatic discombobulation. It's a known. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've named it, <laughs> now we can solve it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Right. I mean, my experience is is that um, anybody with false certainty is just peddling a shtick, you know, either for themselves or, or, or for their marks. And, and, um, and, it, and, and it's pernicious and it's, it, and it's a problem because we're so hardwired to believe in and be suckers for a yeah. ripping yarn that works out swimmingly in the end. You know, like, and John Gray, the European intellectual historian, he's at London School of Economics, wrote a book called Black Mass apocalyptic religions and the death of utopia and he makes this great point where he's like look all of these structures of like there was a time of grace then there was a fall and then there's a happy hop you know a happy happening thing coming soon and after which everything comes up roses that is the judeo-christian alpha omega and it is so deeply baked in it was true for the communist revolution you know like agrarian society was awesome Yuval Harari does the same thing right he 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 Posits, hey, hunter-gatherers were rad, agrarian revolution is patriarchy, sexism, malnutrition, overwork, right? We've all got the places where there's the fall, and then we all posit, and, and again, communism follows it without God, but it's the same structure, as does blockchain cryptocurrency enthusiasts, as do psychedelic renaissance, techno-utopians. It's this just deep, deep structure in at least Western narrative and mythopoetics. So when we hear them, we're just primed for them. You know, right, and, right, and so, so the I, my sense is is that you know, um, sort of some version of like agnostic gnosticism, like the agnostic part is like, what the fuck do I know, right? This is an ineffable mystery, this human experience. But the gnostic part is, hey, and you can have a direct, affirming experience of the nature of reality and self that's yours and yours alone, right? But you know, s steer clear of false certainties. I mean, like Robert Anton Wilson famously said, talking about like the Chapel Perilous, which is like that grail legend, but the idea of like, it, it, it got ported by the psychedelic head community to be like hyperspace, DMT space, whatever. And he's like, in entering or, or wildly non-dual tantric consciousness. He's like, basically, you know, in anybody who, who enters the Chapel Perilous comes back one of only two things, insane or agnostic. You know, and you're like, yeah, that's probably a good way to do it. Like, obviously, we don't want to lose our shit, but like the agnostic, like hold it all loosely. And mm. and what's our experience? Because, you know, staring into the screaming abyss, you know, Camus said it in his myth of Sisyphus, right? He's like, the only real question is whether or not to commit suicide. And you're like, yeah, because if you really do do the Ernest Becker thing, you're like, man, life is nasty, brutish and short. I'm here. Everything I try seems pointless. It all turns to ashes and dust. You know, this is just a futile effort to try and make our mark on an indifferent cosmos. Why not just end it? Right. You've got to have a good answer to that question. 
and and my sense for me at least is is the only things that matter and this i think you know 100% aligns with what you opened this this riff with which is when i feel super down about the pointlessness of it all the futility <laughs> you know I, it's it's like the three things that get me up uh seek novelty make art and help others and because like the seek novelty is like if i'm feeling flat and that life is just a hamster wheel of repetitious bullshit it's like i probably haven't gone and and actually adventured explored seen shooting stars sunrises sunsets done something new hucked myself down a mountain whatever it would be so like we're we're rewarded for salience we're rewarded for dopamine we're we're highly rewarded for novelty like it's hardwired into us to seek and search and explore so when you're feeling flat check that tank you know the next one is make art because ultimately it is all futile we are we are only here for a few decades and so that notion of like rage against the dying of the light rage against entropy and the second law of thermodynamics that you know look upon my works ye mighty and despair ozymandias you know the eroded statue like fucking make a mark make something that's good true or beautiful and then if you've figured out those first two turn around and help someone else who hasn't and to me, like, that's a bare bones sort of transcendental existentialism. Like, it doesn't pretend mm. that there's some happy just so story of false certainty or the universe is watching out for us or your guardian angels here or, you know, or Jiminy Cricket or whatever. But it is to say, we're here, we're alive. Holy shit. That's fascinating. You know, so let's make the most of it without whistling past the graveyard, you know, <laughs> to, to kind of keep to keep the spooky, scary stuff. Uh, at bay. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think, though, there's a a romanticization of despair happening in, in our era? You know, um, I, you know, I rebel. I, I sort of align with Harari in the sense that I do think that the reason that that narrative structure that you described is so compelling for us is that there is baked into our DNA uh, hundreds of thousands of years of close community, yes. of a very relatively relaxed sexual behavior, mm -hmm. of sex without shame, without fear, without any kind of institutional um, condemnation, uh, of looking into fire every night, yeah. of honoring Cape people Man who could make us. Yeah, yeah. right. Caveman TV. That's the light part. And the entertainment part is people who can tell a good story, people <laughs> like you, people who can make other people laugh, which I think is one of the truly unique human attribute, attributes is the, the ability to respond to despair with humor. Dude, that's stranger in a strange land, right? He doesn't become a full human until he sees the monkey get hit and then turn around and hit the smaller monkey. And then he laughs his ass off. And he's like, you guys don't laugh at jokes. This is why I had such a hard time figuring you folks out. You laugh when something's painful. <laughs> right. 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 It, it's, it's the only real defense, right, is an acknowledgement of the absurdity of existence. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I, I do feel I, I just listened to a really interesting podcast the other day. Um, it was an essay read by David Abrams, who wrote The Spell of the Sensuous. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, really interesting book, which I think you would particularly find fascinating. And he he's touching on these things we're talking about, because what he says is 
that we have um, lost our relationship with an animistic universe where everything is imbued with spirit everything has intentionality everything is living its life on its own terms on you know trees are moving at a much slower rate than bears and possums um, but they're all alive they're all moving there's a spirit in the river there's spirit in the rock everything is is on this sort of trajectory we've lost that the world has become dead to us yes and the way we've responded is by trying to animate our creations. So we now have these refrigerators that speak to us. And, you know, the, the Internet of Things, where everything's communicating with everything else. We're trying to reanimate our world even as we're destroying it. You know, which is kind of, you talk about Vine Deloria and your early education. It's always been very interesting to me that, you know, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show started celebrating the American Indian at exactly the moment when there really were no more, there's no more threat from the American Indian, right? There was no more authentic presence. They had been so destroyed that now it was safe to make a show about them and, you know, get um, Sitting Bull out here on stage as like the ultimate humiliation. I kind of feel like we're doing that with the natural world. Anyway, so to get back to what I was saying, I, I do feel like that narrative structure is compelling to us because we have lost uh, a connection to the things that actually make us happy. Yeah. Which are the things that animated the world in which our species evolved. Yeah. I mean, 100%. And that's literally what guided my uh, grad work, right? I mean, I, I was a young idealist romantic. And I was like, wait, Western Civ feels like it's gone off the rails. Where did we go wrong? And I literally wanted to zero in on proto-Columbian contact. Like, what was the intersection of cultures when it was still a fair fight? Not when it was the dances with wolves, you know, we know we know the tragic ending, but what happened for like 300 years with the Iroquois Confederacy, you know, just hmm. gaming the French and the English, or what happened when, you know, like when there were legitimate clashes of civilizations and you could really test the efficacy, vibrancy, resiliency of different life ways. And, and so, yeah, I'm right there with you. And, and, and it was actually... It was, it was the birth of my son. You know, I, I was a backwards looking, we've gone off the rails, um, you know, cynic slash romantic, depending on which way we were looking. And then yeah. you know, my son came into the world and, and, and a few things, I was like, oh, from this moment forward, um, I'm rooting for this to work out. And, and the, way for, the, way, the way through is forwards. We, ha, you know, we have to go that way. And it's also why I yeah. was never tempted by like Matrix style Gnosticism. The idea that like this, this world is illusory. This world is a prison. You know, this world is false. It was like, nah, man, this is where my kids live. You know, and if I and, and there's no way I'm going to adopt a philosophy that lets me diminish or lessen my possible connection with them here and now. Um, this is such a difficult thing, but such an important thing, um, what you just brought into this, which is how our necessities, the, the sort of sometimes arbitrary necessities of our lives create 
the perspective from which we view things and filter the conclusions that we're willing to come to, right? Because oh, yeah. I don't have kids. Mm -hmm. And so when I have this conversation with friends of mine who do have kids, I'm very sensitive to the fact that there are certain things that I believe mm -hmm. that in a normal conversation I would argue for mm -hmm. that my friend simply cannot believe, mm -hmm. you know, because it would hurt too bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that has nothing to do with what's true and what isn't true. Yep. Um, you know, like I, I hear people say, well, I have to be an optimist. So I have to believe that this is all going to work out. And I think, okay, you have to be an optimist, but that's what you're saying is I'm unwilling to really look at this comprehensively. Mm -hmm. Because I have an emotional need not to, well, and, which yeah, I respect. Well, and, but and to be clear, I, I I agree with you, and I wouldn't say I have to believe it's going to. I said I'm rooting for it. Like I'm going to bust my ass to try and help it happen. Right? <laughs> okay. but, but ultimately, That's different, my, my assessment, yeah. if you if I was to take these odds to Vegas, right? I mean, there is a reason I just potentially blew up my entire career writing this book, right? Because I was like, I don't think we have time to do anything else other than swing for the fences with as much love and courage as we can muster, you know? Mm. So, so like if, if any sane person would have been like, Oh dude, that's like, that's your next three books, do them one at a time. And I was like, no, nah, I don't no, I can't like, we're going to put this together and we're going to tell the whole thing end to end because to kind of bring this all full circle with, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm vibing for sure with your general position. Right. And, and that sense of, well, how do we go from, hockey stick utopian curves where we're all just lunging for a for a happily ever after but we're, we're not willing to solve the gordian knot between here and there right and that's that's a rapture ideology we're looking to piece out and bypass it is the idea that it's it is literally like the human experience what's the point of being here that kind of existential dilemma is to simply is to is to step up onto the cross of kairos and chronos Right, like that sort of esoteric mystic interpretation of the cross, which is like the axis mundi, right? The timeless deep now is forever and always. And then the chronological cross beam is linear time, you know, our lives, ding, 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 minutes and seconds and, and years. And it is the agony and the ecstasy to be you know, the Rosicrucians, right? That's why they called themselves the Rosicrucians. It was the rosy cross, right? Of a beating heart embodied in a human, bearing witness to the impossible enigma of being timeless and time bound. And it is, it is the blissfuck crucifixion, right? We have access to neck snapping, ecstatic states and invariably heartbreaking grief. And and the tron and, and the soul force, like you know, Martin Luther King's notion or, or Gandhi's Satyagraha, like the true like like cosmic depth charge of a human potential is to bear witness to it without flinching. And to your point, a number of indigenous cultures and really I mean anything but technocratic contemporary modern west almost you can pretty much look anywhere around the world and you're like oh these people are poor but they're happy why is that what's going on you know and it's like well because they're using the toolkit of human culture they they dine together they bathe they sing songs they tell stories they grieve they they, they, they honor their elders they grieve and bury their dead you know it, it's the timeless things 
and we've, we've we've become so abstracted from it that we're seeking singular, conclusive, redemptive outs, usually by buying shit, <laughs> you know, or yeah. inventing stuff and then buying or selling it to someone, right? But but versus like to your point, like life is irreducibly tragic, but if we if that's the only place we live, then the mundane will crush us. And life is occasionally magic, and that's easier to forget. But if we can re-anoint and reacquaint ourselves with it, it can provide profound renewal and give us a reason for being. And then when you find yourself whipsawing between those two, then it's comic. You're like, oh, this is just, this is man proposes, God disposes, right? This is the cosmic giggle. And we share that humor at the impossibility of, you know, Zorba the Greeks, like the full catastrophe of human experience when we can share that together right then it's a little less wife kids it's a little less shitty yeah. it's just a little less shitty that's all we got for you but that that you know that that that's you know that's what's on the menu i was reading last night um uh my friend stanley kripner is is writing his a memoir oh, uh, and he's in his yeah. 80s do you, do you know yeah. who he is um he was writing about a lecture that he attended with um Oh, fuck, who is the psychologist? I, I'm spacing on his name right now. Famous psychologist who wrote about peak states. Maslow, um, Maslow right. Abraham Maslow, exactly. Um, I should send you this chapter. It's, re- it's really interesting. Yeah, um, anyway, Maslow's in his 80s, I think, at the time. Uh, and he's he says, uh, you know, I don't, I don't experience peak states as much as I used to. In fact, I'm... Uh, I'm a little worried that my body can't handle them. So uh, I think that as people age, maybe they get afraid that, you know, a peak state would just be too destabilizing and there's sort of a physiological avoidance. Mm -hmm. But he said, uh, interestingly, I found, and the phrase he used was really interesting. He said something like a precipitation, like a sedimentation of peak states that has accumulated in the sort of uh, the sort of mundane parts of my life so that as i get older i feel this sort of low level but widespread sense of the miraculous yes inhabiting things that used to just be normal life and now you know i listen to a piece of music and it's i've heard it a thousand times but it blows my mind in a way it never would have before or i see a, a bird you know land on the branch outside the window and it's imbued with this kind of wonder <laughs> um you know, and I was thinking about that because, like you said, life is irreducibly tragic and so on. And, you know, I've studied Buddhism and, and come up, you know, with that kind of thing often. But the problem I always had with Buddhism was this sort of like uh, embrace the tragedy of life, accept it, um, and also eschew desire. Mm. And this brings us to your book, I think, because I've always thought, no, desire's the good part. Yes desires the juice don't tell me to just eat the dry husk and accept that that's what life is and turn away from the juice i understand i shouldn't get obsessed with it and and you know don't let it become another trigger for agony but desires fucking great It's why I never understood breatharians. It's like, but pork chops taste good. You know? Bacon tastes good. Like, why are you holding that fucking out as an exalted state? Yeah. And 
Yeah. Yeah. Turning away from pleasure doesn't seem the right move. No, exactly. And, and I mean, you know, and I, to, to give the Buddhists their due, right? I think they were saying that the unhealthy attachment to that which you perceive will make you whole in a, in a, in a universe that is forever fluid and ongoing and, and, and un, un, unachievable will create more suffering. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm 100% right. right with you. And I think that, you know, on the esoteric level, but also on a quite practical level, right, is that sense of, oh, we were all born the first time by accident, by the accident of conception. And we all go from that pre-tragic womb-like state, whether it's literally just in the womb or whether it's for a happy childhood or whether it's all the way through college and graduate degrees and getting that, getting that partner at the law firm or whatever, whatever you know, brass rings we're chased until the tragic slams us to the ground, beats us to our knees. You know, and that's divorce, that's illness, that's bankruptcy, that's, that's infidelity, you name it, just the suffering of life, trauma. And then we're like, wait a second, everything doesn't happen for a reason and I'm not so special, cupcake. I'm actually adrift in an indifferent <laughs> fucking universe that's right, taking me to my knees. And then, and then yeah. we have this chance via some form of death, rebirth, experience or ritual. And this goes back to you know, shamanic dismemberment in the indigenous traditions, the Lucinian mysteries, you name it. They're ubiquitous around the world, including everything I wrote about in Stealing Fire, like ecstatic states, extreme sports, psychedelics, meditation, sexuality. They're all... They take you out of yourself via a, an ego death, la petite mort, some, some dying to be reborn. And then and only then do we actually have the chance to opt in with consent to being born on this earth in these bodies. And then I think that is the profound, like amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Um, was blind, but now I see that moment of where, where like adolescence, and, and, I, and we, you see this in the culture wars right now. You've got the alt-right and you've got the far left, and both of them are effectively railing against the tragedy that they're aware of and cling and trying to go back to a pre-tragic world where everything's perfect and safe and whether that's outright mm. identitarians of like wait i thought this was a white protestant christian nation made by us and for us and i was born on third base but i'm convinced i hit a triple and you're telling me i didn't and we've got the rust belt and the collapse of extractive industries and an erosion of status and prestige and that fucking sucks so we want to go clinging back to you know i want to wear a viking helmet and pretend that i'm like some norse aryan like you know that's clearly a juvenile response to the complexity of our crisis but so is the far left where you're like, we want to go back through history and judge everybody by our yardsticks and anybody that, do that said something or did something that doesn't match our current mores and values should be excised from the historical record and that's suffering or triggering. You're like, guys, nobody promised us a rose garden. What did you think the human experience has been like? It is, we are all rapers and rapists. We're like, 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 look at, you know, 8% of Asia has Genghis Khan's DNA, for God's sake. You know, if you look at David Reich's genetics work at Harvard, you know, on Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, like it has just been a mishmash of conquest, assimilization, blending, cross-pollination, like this is it. And, and you know, the, the civil rights tradition, right, coming out of slavery, coming out of Southern Baptist, you know, tradition, the, the Martin Luther Kings, the Howard Thurmans, like that was a post-tragic tradition and we lost that lineage. Right. I mean, even like Black Lives Matter is not actually a continuation. In fact, it's an explicit abrogation of that lineage. And if you think about millennial activists and younger Gen Y and millennials, right, they grew up on Beyonce, Barack and Bling. You didn't have soul, gospel, blues, those those traditions. You had hip hop that was fundamentally also buying into we we deserve our spot 
in a materialistic, consumptive, status-oriented, multicultural society where anybody can grow up to be a president, including a black guy whose name is Barack. But that collapsed. So the question is, is how do we all collectively boot back up, pick up the scattered Lego blocks around us? Because we have them, right? We have them in, like I said, the, the American songbook, the, the, the sort of the hermetic living tradition of like redemption songs. And how do we re reorient around a post-tragic, like twice born, like we actually have chosen this. We're no longer seeking to bypass it via state seeking, via transcendence, via magical thinking, conspiracy theories, new age philosophies. We're actually like, no, 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 here's the miracle. This is the brief moment. Like if we are in fact, you know, as Carl Sagan said, we are star stuff, right? So you're like, that's the table stakes. That's the constant ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We all end up back there. What's amazing, what is the miracle is not can I have a spiritual quote-unquote experience? It's can I have a human experience? And can I show up? Because like we're the sort of existential mayflies of the universe, right? Like if you think of all the myths where like the gods are jealous of us or the angels or vampires, any immortal, hmm. really, they're always fascinated in all the stories about how do you guys care so goddamn much about your little piddling lives. And I think that's kind of our answers, like because they are so little and so piddling, because they are so brief and fragile. And our ability to love, to, to yeah. fight, to fuck, to care, yeah. to build, to grieve, like that is our actually like people trying to escape it. Like that's the bad stuff. It's like, no, 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 that's the blessing. So that's, let's segue into your book then. Is that the essential message of recapturing the rapture or what? What is the answer to this question, that this conundrum that you've outlined so beautifully? Yeah, I mean, my, my hope is, is that, you know, and, and this is really pretty new research. Like I was just kind of putting this together in the last three, four years. This is an amalgamation of a bunch of brilliant neuroscientists, psychologists, other folks. But just to connect the dots and be like, oh, those, that death rebirth process, right, that has really only been handed down in culture through religious or, or spiritual traditions, which is so it's, they've always come wrapped in a lot of mythologizing, right? We now actually have the neurosomatic protocol of what does a death rebirth experience look like and how does it function? So you can calibrate it. You're like, you know, boost endorphins, boost oxytocin and serotonin, create high vagal nerve tone, you know, jack your endocannabinoids, lower your brainwave states to low delta wave EEGs, you know, pulse energy through your nervous system in the form of, you know, it could be magnetic, it could be percussive, like a theragun or something, it could be, it could be DC current, AC current, it could be pain, it could be orgasm, light up your nervous system, have a peak slash refractory global system reset, and the interiority of that, which has been the seedbed of most philosophy and religion, keep that shit content neutral. Like this, if we're trying to do something open source, like any tops down solution, if it's baby Jesus or it's Buddha or it's guardian angels or it's Arcturians, who the fuck knows? Right. So we can just, we can just, you know, discretion is the better part of valor on that. But you can, you can give people these protocols. You can instantiate them within cultural containers that are appropriate for you, your community, your belief systems, your values, your resources. And then, and let's revitalize culture architecture, you know, with a sort of open source toolkit. Because my deep, I mean, I don't have many convictions. I'm, I'm super duper, like, I don't know. But one that I have is that, 
if people can have those experiences, they are not just autotelic, like they're super gratifying, but they're also autodidactic. Like they tend to disclose to us that which we need to know most. And but isn't there a danger in keeping... I, 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 listening to you describe that, uh, I thought of Wordsworth's phrase, we murder to dissect. Um, you know, describing peak experiences in terms of neurotransmitters and, you know, brain waves and heart rate. And uh, it, it feels like such a secularization yeah. of uh, a desacralization of something. And then when you said, you know, the interiority of it, we should keep content free. I thought, OK, I get where you're coming from. You're coming from a place of of not wanting to sell bullshit in this sacred container. And yet I wonder if the content free nature of what we seek to be doing is not itself part of the problem. You know, I think about these instant shamans who fly down to Peru and do a few ayahuasca ceremonies and come back and start, you know, dispensing advice to everybody as if they've fucking seen the light, you know, um, there's a cultural tradition that we might look at from our perspective and say, you know, the Shipibo people, you know, believe that the jaguar comes to you in your dreams and that's a bunch of horseshit. But there's a reason that there's content there. The content itself is the guidance, right? And I'm not saying that we can access that content outside of that cultural context, but we're kind of fucked because here we are in a world where we don't believe in anything. And yet we're taking these technologies of ecstasy and, and we're trying to use them to find our way. It's like a blind guy with a flashlight. It's like it, it, it's not going to work, right? Um, so I wonder about the danger of this. You know, and again, I get your intention is very benevolent. But I wonder about the scientificization and the secularization of these sacred processes yeah, and rituals. That's beautiful. I mean, I'm right there with you, right? So it's it's actually on on my part. It's it's the commitment to um, basically sovereign development and consent of the individual. So to not smuggle in someone else's ontology to what can and hopefully could be a unique relationship with the numinous, unmediated by any middleman, including me or anybody else, right? And our, and our colleague, Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins, we're doing a PTSD and breathwork uh, study w with them. And he's just published a paper recently, which I wholeheartedly agree with, which is the problem of thera psychedelic therapists smuggling in their mishmash worldviews into people in peak and therefore highly susceptible and suggestible states. And he's like, look, you, could, you know, that, that, that is an yeah. ethical violation and people are absolutely squishing those boundaries. So the pathological restraint in what I'm sharing isn't that my experience haven't, haven't been interiorly, profoundly, gobsmackingly wild and wonderful and aren't the lodestone by which we live our life and our relationship and our family. They absolutely do. And in fact, this entire book came from that space. Right. But my interest is the meta. What is the like, how, what is the Linux? Right. What is the blockchain of transformational consciousness and culture? And, and I'm just going, you know, my commitment is to not taint 
the architecture of, or the coding with my own personal experience. And I mean, I take, I take a cut at the most vulnerable thing yeah. I wrote in the book, like sex, drugs, you know, all those things, like just stepping on landmines left and right. And I'm fine with that, right? Like to me, that's like, that's not that different than like a knife edge ridge in the mountains. Like, okay, I'm alive and this matters and can't fuck it up. The place where I had to do a few hard swallows was actually trying to articulate my personal experience wrestling with the conundrum of mystic Christianity. I was like, whoa, I'm really out on the sharp end here. Like I'm actually showing me. I'm not just assembling a bunch of dazzling, interesting ideas and footnotes. Like this is me raw and exposed. People could just take me out at the knees or laugh even worse, right? God forbid, <laughs> right? So, so yeah. my sense is that that path is for you know, our steps alone. Like no one else can do that part, but here's how you can go and take that journey. And then invariably, um, the, the other, the other, there's, also, there's also something potentially, and this could just go badly wrong. So like, I'm, I'm, I have no illusions that this will work. In fact, it's, it's overwhelmingly far more likely to fail, but it could work. And it's about one of the only things I could think that might work. So therefore, right, <laughs> took a swing at it. But the sense that for all of human history, people had rare, hard to repeat experiences of the sublime. And typically, that, those people were asymmetrically influential in their culture. They would come down the mountain and start a religion, you know, to, to the caricature, right? Now, and, and then over time, because other people couldn't get back to that same place, they took the founder's word for it, they took the arising a, a priest class, the administrative bureaucracy, and that became a tool of power, social control, etc. But now, because we can actually totally signpost for how people can get there in a DIY fashion, you can cut out the middleman and instead of reifying and fetishizing the interior subjective experience of an individual, we can kind of effectively kind of crowdsource post-conventional meaning making, which is go see for yourself. And, and we're not going to actually overly structure mm. or lead the witness. It's the same thing with Terence McKenna talking about, you know, machine elves. Because Terence McKenna used that evocative phrase, now there's been more ink spent and more trip reports written about machine elves, did I or didn't I see them? I think I saw them, I don't know, but it came out differently. You're like, fuck it, it's a wild ass multiverse out there, friends. You know, so let's hold it all Yeah, closely. yeah. So you're talking about something like a, a modern uh, iteration of the Elysian Mysteries or something where people have direct access. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Hundred percent, and you know, and also, I mean, you know, to your point about ethics, right? I mean, I, I kind of built it. I was like, here's a toolkit if you want to establish meaning 3.0, and at least if you look to the anthropological record, you need a metaphysics. You have to have some decently rigorous way to make sense of the non-dual or non or, or ineffable. You need an ethics, right? Because otherwise, that's the tail rotor on a helicopter. Without you just spin around in circles, right? Seeking sensations and chasing the pretty lights. You need sacraments, a way to reintroduce the connection to the sacred. You need um, scriptures. You need stories that serve for how ought we live and what's this human experience about. And we need some relationship to deity, some relationship to, and take your pick, right? It could just be um, highest values and ideals like freedom or patriotism or equality. It could be Jungian archetypes, you know, it could be dipping back into the toolkit of the world traditions and different gods and angels. It could be some, you know, basically almost like Crowleyan magic, 
you know, of like I'm instantiating a holographic, you know, deity worship, like like Tibetan Buddhism of wrathful and benevolent deities or Catholic veneration of the saints. You become what you behold, like Marshall McLuhan said. You can literally work with these things as hyper objects. They don't have to be sky gods, you know, in bathrobes and sandals, right? So if you have those things, then everybody's going to build it and skin it in totally different ways. But let's hope that, you know, and 99% of them will crash and burn badly, but 1% might really show some flourishing of human ingenuity and spirit that actually is adaptive and progresses, you know, and persists as a cultural meme. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jamie Wheel. The book is out today. It's called Recapturing the Rapture. Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. And you can find it wherever fine books are sold. Uh, don't forget, go to my Instagram feed, that Chris Ryan, and uh, tell me why you want the Enigma, which will give you a dual-action sonic massage, ladies women, whatever you want me to call you, uh, you will um, <laughs> then report back to me because I have no idea what that would feel like, but I imagine it would probably feel pretty good. So it's the Enigma and uh, say something about space, spaceships, um, Captain Kirk, Spock, anything, any little hint that lets me know that you heard this on the website or on the uh, podcast and that you weren't just a random Instagram follower who's trying to cash in on an enigma from Lilo.com. You can find uh, all sorts of amazing stuff at Lilo.com. When they are not running a site-wide sale, you can use Chris Ryan at checkout to get 20% off. But I think at the moment they've got a sale going on all over the place. So that uh, discount code is only good for full priced items. And right now everything's on sale. So go to Lilo.com for all your gift giving needs for the ladies in your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast, everybody. I appreciate you all more than you can know. Um, I'm going to let you go with my mom and the great Carsey Blanton, as usual. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you soon. Okay, Mom. uh, Tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and talking out of my ass <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one then we now have some new things added we've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called oh civilized to death design. they're all civilized That's right. to death. we have stickers and car decals right yes okay there you have it that's julie my mom he said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? 
arguing about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.